Greetings. This is Mommy Melusine back with another episode of the Merwomanist podcast. This is episode four, and I just wanted to hop on really quick and talk a little bit about the mermaid aspects of Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever, which I just saw recently. And one of the things I think that I'm going to do is I want to put popular um, films and things that I think people are more likely to have seen in conversation with books, you know, and other things that I think they might not have seen or read. So I want to briefly talk about Wakanda Forever, particularly thinking about it from a merwomanist perspective, a mermaid perspective, um, with River Solomon's The Deep, which is a book that a lot of people in the booktube community, which is something that I'm just kind of making my foray into, as well as the mermaid community have been really interested in. So, um, so, I'm not going to talk about all of Wakanda forever. I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was really amazing. It was really beautiful. I think it brings up a lot of really complicated, um, interesting feelings and questions around solidarity across for Black and Brown and Indigenous peoples and conflicts between us. I think it brings up a lot of questions about within the space of Hollywood and major blockbuster film and especially a company like Disney and this kind of Marvel cinematic universe um, of the MCU, it brings up a lot of questions about how far can you go, you know? And I think those were also questions that we had about the first film too. Um, you know, how far can you go in anti-colonial politics? And you know, we've had two films now where we've seen, you know, interior conflicts in Wakanda, and now we've seen um, Black and ancient Mesoamerican people fighting each other. And, you know, I think that there are some questions and conversations people are having about, well, when do we get to see them <laughs> take on the white supremacist forces that are really the background and the cause and impetus to all of these conflicts? So, you know, I think those are conversations we're, we're going to keep having, but I, I like what Kugler is doing. I think he's being very kind of subtle and strategic um, about kind of, you know, mo moving the politics a little bit further in each film. Um, I know that there are some different conversations about Indigenous peoples and the way that they're positioned within this film. And I personally do feel like thinking of Namor or the people of Talakan as villains is a really willful misreading of the film because they're not, <laughs> right? Like the, the, the impetus and the motivations are very, very clear and they're very um, understandable. And I completely understand their critique of Wakanda and T'Challa's politics and the direction he moved the film, um, the, the direction he was moving into. Um, you know, these are things we have to keep talking about. <laughs> For the purpose of this episode, I just want to focus on the film's allusions to mermaids and to the myth of Atlantis, which is also something that is alluded to in a lot of the Black mermaid 
um, content that I am studying for my project. Um, so I should back up because a lot of people might not have seen the film within, and I'm going to try to do this without spoilers, um, but within Wakanda Forever, um, the sort of I guess the antagonist, I guess we could call him an antagonist, right? Well, kind of forever depicts the conflict between, and this conflict is canon from the books. So there are times in the books where um, Namor and T'Challa are fighting each other. And there are also times in the books where they become allies. So they kind of go back and forth. Um, so this film depicts the conflict between Namor, who is the, the king um, of an undersea civilization. In the books, it's Atlantis, but within the film, this Atlantis is reimagined as Telecom, which is a civilization of Mesoamerican peoples who also um, who also received the harsh, I feel like it's another version of the same plant, the same plant that the heart-shaped herb, which gives the Black Panther um, their power. It is a version of that same plant that these ancient indigenous peoples consumed that allowed them to live in the ocean. Um, so the this whole undersea civilization, rather than being Atlantis, it is actually this, this Mesoamerican underwater world. Um, so the film depicts the conflict between them and Wakanda over the danger <laughs> that Wakanda def directly puts both of their nations in because of the exposure of the vibranium resource um, to the West, which why, <laughs> right? Like I agree with Namor, why? <laughs> um, so I wanna talk about this undersea world and this reframing of Atlantis because this also comes up in a lot of the work that I um, look at in my work. Um, so first, I want to talk a little about Atlantis. Atlantis is um, a it first comes up in the works of Plato, and it is basically a parable or a fable about like the danger of pride. Um, so Atlantis was a civilization in which the people were part God, but they became too arrogant. Um, they were very advanced. They became arrogant, and they ended up losing. Um, in battle to the Athenians and as punishment for their arrogance, they were cast to the bottom of the sea. Their civilization was submerged. So this has um, been a, and, and there are kind of pseudo historians and people who have taken up the myth of Atlantis throughout years and generations in order to explain it's just very like white colonial racist I, um, sort of concept that has sort of hypothesis that Atlantis was the civilization that basically influenced and gave birth to like ancient Egypt and ancient Maya, right? Like the pyramids and the scientific accomplishments, you know, this idea that they had to get it from somewhere else, right? And I mean, this, if for anyone who has studied um, this, I think we're probably, is, is very interesting to think that, you know, how white supremacy works that, you know, that white people have been more willing to envision that, you know, ancient black and indigenous peoples um, 
civilizations and accomplishments will have to be inspired by this like magical mythical civilization or by aliens or something like that we couldn't have come up with this stuff ourselves <laughs> right so Atlantis has been used historically in these really you know kind of cologne the idea the myth of Atlantis has been used in these very colonial um very you know racist ways so I find it really um compelling the way in which black and indigenous artists have taken up the myth of Atlantis. So Joshua Bennett, um, I can't think of, the, there's a scholar named Joshua Bennett in, um, ah, the name of his book is escaping me, <laughs> but it's a book that is um, sort of looking at animal and the way that animals show up in African-American literature and the way that that proposes a different way of thinking about our relationship to animals, that's not just through the way in which white supremacy has constructed our relationship to animals and the way that literature offers a way of thinking beyond that. This is also something that Zakia Amon Jackson, who is a favorite um, thinker of mine has also talked about. So Joshua Bennett's, um, the name of the book is escaping me, but I will put it in the show notes. Um, his book is organized around, I really love the way the book is structured because each chapter is organized around a different animal and its recurring presence in African-American literature. So there's one about the cock or the rooster. Um, there's a chapter about the mule, I believe. And there's a chapter about the shark. So in the chapter about the shark, he talks a lot about sort of Black aquatic lore and Black relationships to the water um, and that relate how that relationship has been shaped by the Middle Passage. So in this chapter, he talks about the Black Atlantis idea and how the Black Atlantis idea has shown up in the work of people like Sun Ra, um, Parliament Funk Funkadelic, of Drexia. I'm sure I've talked about Drexia before, which is a Black electronic duo um, out of Detroit in the 1990s, which imagined an underwater civilization that developed from um, the, the, the people who evolved from the wombs of pregnant women who were cast overboard. Um, so he talks about this Black Atlantis uh, myth as a form of fugitivity um, and how the, the animal in this sense, right, the connection to the ocean, the connection to sharks, the connections to aquatic life becomes a way of imagining an otherwise, uh, otherwise existence for Black people that doesn't have to be overdetermined by the forces of white supremacy, right? So, and elsewhere, and elsewhere where we would thrive, which would have to be elsewhere <laughs> than the world that we have. Um, so this, so I look at this idea um, as, I call this idea the crossing merfolk idea. And I take the language of the crossing, I, this idea as I've been theorizing it and thinking about it um, actually has gone through a lot of iterations. So originally I was calling it the Black Atlantic merfolk. Then I was calling it the Middle Passage Merfolk, but I specifically call it the Crossing after reading M. Jackie Alexander's Pedagogies of the Crossing, which I'm also going to include in the show notes. And I'm really drawn to this definition because she emphasizes crossings not only as a term to describe the Middle Passage, the, the transatlantic crossing of 
African people who were being enslaved and all of the trauma and the, the deaths and the violence that that, that that brings with it, but also talking about the crossing of culture, right? That unlike these kind of myths that we've gotten that, you know, Black people sort of came to this country as blank slates, that they brought their spirits and their cosmologies and cultures and languages with them, um, but also the crossing within African cosmologies, the crossroads as a place of transformation. Um, so I call this idea the crossing merfolk idea, right? The, the transformation of people into merfolk as a form of fugitivity from the violence of white supremacy and a method in a way of imagining an otherwise um, for the people who have been targeted for genocide, enslavement, and exploitation by white supremacy um, and by Western colonial, by European colonialism, let's be really specific. And so I was just so thrilled. I did not expect this. I did not know. So I guess this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler, but if you haven't, I'll put a warning in the show notes that if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to know anything, even though it's been out three weeks, so what are you doing? <laughs> but if you haven't seen it and you don't want to know anything, then maybe, you know, don't watch this. But I won't say the end or anything. But so Namor um, abducts Shuri. Well, Shuri, Shuri agrees to go <laughs> without a lot of choices um, to Namor's underwater kingdom. And he explains to her his backstory and his people and how he came to be and how his people came to be. And so Namor is a, a member of, and I mean, they're not, I don't feel like the film is super specific about the actual people. And that might be kind of one of the critiques that I think we could have not only of the representation of indigenous peoples in the film, but um, but even a lot of these products that are blending these different areas, um, di these different aspects and cultures and peoples of, um, of non-white cultures, right? Um, you know, so I'm saying Mesoamerican because there are both Mayan and Aztec um, influences that we can see in Namor and Telecon. Um, so, but he he comes from, and, the, and then I also feel like, I maybe need to watch the film a few more times. I also feel like it's not made very specific where he comes from, like where is it exactly? Like what, like what's the coast? What's the ocean? What's the area that's being colonized? But we see, so maybe that's something that if I watch it again, I'll see, but we see that there is a community of indigenous peoples, um, that the Spanish, you know, so that the, the Spanish are in the process of colonizing um, that they have brought with them, right? And this is one of the, there was also, I feel like the, the role of disease in the conquest of indigenous peoples has been a little bit overemphasized in order to de-emphasize the actual heinous murder that happened. <laughs> um, but disease was a factor, right? You have people coming from the Western hemisphere with these um, germs and these viruses that, you know, people in, in indigenous people had not been exposed to. So a smallpox plague comes with the Europeans and this community suffering from smallpox and their shaman, um, one of their sort of religious spiritual um, leader, um, receives a vision about this plant that can save them. And so I take it that 
um, because spoiler alert, <laughs> Shori will later sort of use this information against him. But this plant is a version of the heart-shaped herb, maybe like an ancestor of it or a similar version of the heart-shaped herb that will give the Black Panther its powers. Um, so that they take this plant and it and they suddenly have no ability to breathe air and they're able to go into the water where um, they have exceptional strength, they have exceptional healing abilities, um, they have gills um, and they are able to survive in the water. Um, but when they come out of the water, they're blue. And so this is a nod to the sort of, the way Atlanteans are depicted in the comics in which they are blue, blue skinned, right? Um, and you know, the blue, I get it, you know, <laughs> I, I I like the way it's reframed because it is, it's suggested to me that the blue is not because they're like alien, right? That the reason their skin takes on this blue tinge is because they're not getting oxygen. Like, at least that's how I interpreted it, right? Like, like because they're only blue skinned above the water. Um, when I was first seeing the previews for the movie and I saw the blue skin, I was, and I knew that they were being sort of reframed as indigenous peoples, I was a little bit like, oh, you know, I just kept having flashbacks to Avatar, right? <laughs> like, and all the problematics of that. But I think that the way that it's re-sort of imagined in this film is significant because it suggests that this is, this is, it's, they're only blue above the water. And they're also wearing these kind of, um, mass so that they can breathe when they come out of the water but when they go under the water they are their true selves and I I I like that I can get with that but you know I will understand if there's some offense to these blue skin native peoples I would understand that um so you know they go into the water but one of the women who is Namor's mother um is pregnant she's pregnant with him and she was hesitant to take the herb because of her pregnancy, but was told that her child would, would basically be the bridge between the peoples and that he would, he would become their king. And so Namor is a mutant and he's a hybrid. So he is able to retain his true form out of the water and pass between worlds. And it also looks like he's an immortal, or at least he's very long lived because at the time of the action of the film, he's hundreds of years old. So I was really thrilled to see this story and this reimagining because it just reminds me so much. I'm like, this is the Crossing Merfolk story. I mean, it's not the Crossing Merfolk story in the sense that the people do not come from the transatlantic crossing. They are not African people, but they are also indigenous people. And African people are also indigenous people, right? Um, I say African indigenous to distinguish when I'm talking about African peoples versus, you know, indigenous people of the Americas um, or other, or other um, nations, but African people are also indigenous people, right? Um, so it's so I can't call it the crossing merfolk story, but I think it is another iteration of the concept of mermaids or merfolk as emerging as a form of fugitivity from white supremacist violence, 
from white colonialism, from enslavement um, and genocide. And I just think it's just beautiful. And I didn't expect to see that show up in this film. So this is also very similar to this novel is The Deep by River Solomon. River Solomon uses they, them pronouns. Um, but River Solomon um, is an amazing writer. And this book was actually inspired by a song by the hip-hop group The Clipping with members David Diggs and people might know David from Hamilton. Um, he was Frederick Douglass um, character. Not Frederick Douglass. I said Frederick Douglass. That's who he looked like to me. He was not Frederick Douglass. <laughs> it was Thomas Jefferson. We want to talk problematic, talk Hamilton. The music is beautiful, but um, so David Diggs, William Hudson, and Jonathan Snipes. Um, and so I remember hearing this song on an episode of was it This American Life? Um, it was an NPR program about Afrofuturism. And so I believe this was a commission project. And the song to me appears to be a homage to like Black Atlantis and Black Atlantis and Black music, very specifically referencing the Drexia storyline. But I think in some of the lyrics, there's also a reference to the Parliament Funkadelic novel, Motor Booty Affair, which also um, spoke of an Atlantis um, of Black people beneath the sea. And there was a specific line in both that, in that album, that the clipping reference that said we're dancing without getting wet, right? Because they're already wet because they're in the water. Um, so the deep takes up the Drexia storyline, which is that the merfolk evolve from the wounds of pregnant women who were thrown overboard. So I just see this connection, right? And so the babies, um, you know, the babies that emerge are part aquatic. Now in Drexia, Drexia was largely, um, you know, it was electronic music. There wasn't lyrics. There were some voiceovers that spoke to and hinted at the story. And there were liner notes and album art, but they don't really specifically say the form um, that the, the people have. And the album art depicts them in different ways, sometimes as aquatic mutants with, you know, human legs, but maybe they have little you know, webbed ears and webbed feet or something like that. But I've also seen album covers where they had fishtails. And so the, the book takes it further by really thoroughly sort of envisioning what these people look like. I think the actual book cover is, does not match <laughs> what they look like. Because, you know, we see a more typical mermaid on the cover, you know, the long flowing hair. Um, but in the book, they're bald. They are... Um, scaly um they're you know it, they, they seem to be a lot more fish-like um you know they seem to be a lot more fish-like than human-like um so but they are but they're a different form than the mothers right so similar to how Namor is a hybrid and he can he has you know powers and abilities that um the original people who were transformed um did not the babies, you know, the in the book, they're called the Zotialeu, are the babies that emerge from these mother's wombs. They look very different from the mothers. However, in the deep, the mothers die. Um, and that is something that I recently did a class visit um, for an undergraduate class um, that had read the book, which asked, you know, why have the mothers die? You know, why were the mothers not saved as well? And I think that that's a good question to ask. 
I think the deep is drawing on the Drexian lore and the Drexian lore is drawing on kind of um, evolutionary, it's sort of an idea of sort of this spontaneous evolution, which is the reason that, you know, the idea that in embryo, humans have these aquatic elements, like these resonances of aquatic elements from earlier, earlier um, forms of life and evolution. So tails, you know, the potential for gills. So the idea that when these mothers were thrown overboard, these babies were able to kind of retain those, those, those aquatic elements and evolve into this kind of fish-like creature. Um, so, you know, it's pseudoscience, but it's science, right? So it's a much more science fiction imagining of this. And in some of my other work, I look at other ways that this idea comes about. Um, but there are some interesting connections, I think, between telecom and the world of, I don't feel like the the one of the one of the really beautiful things I think about the deep is that even though it's connected to this Black Atlantis idea, it's not a Black Atlantis imaginary. It's not like a this. It's not a civilization in the way that we see in Talakon. Like there is no king, there are no rulers. It's a very queer, <laughs> like it's a very queer world where. Um, the merfolk choose their own gender, they're polyamorous, um, I mean, if they want to be, you know, so people mate kind of how they want with one person or with many or with several and they raise children, they sort of live scattered throughout in caves, um, and they come together for ceremonies and for mating, but it's not a it's not like a kingdom, right? Um, and I think that that's something that makes this book a lot more radical than some of these sort of Black Atlantis or um, Indigenous Atlantis, you know, images that I've seen before. Um, you know, so, so that's a little bit different, but I think it is a really similar idea. And some of the connections that I see is this connection to whales. So in the film, the way that the... Um, I don't know what to call the people actually, because they're not Atlanteans, um, but that the people of Talakan, right? The way that they travel and the way that they come onto, you know, when they're attacking in battle, the way that they like leap out of the ocean onto the ships or onto land is from whales, you know? So they travel. I remember seeing kill, a lot of killer whales um, in the film but I'm not sure um, if there were other kinds of creatures that they traveled on. I probably have to watch it again to see like dolphins purposes, but there's this connection to whales in particular that I remember. And so that's also something that we see in the deep is this connection to whales that actually the sort of first generation of Zotiolayu of these um, embryonic frit, you know, fishy human-like creatures that emerge from these mothers um, they have no one to nurse them, no one to care for them. So they are cared for by whales and the whales feed them whale milk. And this is how they, they stay alive. And then they become able to reproduce and keep themselves alive. So they have this connection to sea life. So that's a connection. One of the most exciting connections that I saw was in the ways in which both the reimagining of Atlantis in the film and the, you know, sort of reimagining of it in the deep 
is the sort of the reimagining and the reframing and the taking and the revision. I love, this is one of my favorite things. This is one of the things I geek out about is the way in which Black, Indigenous, um, and writers of color and artists of color revise the tropes of Euro-Western myth. I just, I just love it, <laughs> you know? I just love seeing the different things we do with it. So one of the things in um, very particular to Euro-Western mermaid lore is the idea of the siren song, right? And so the idea of the siren comes out of um, I first remember reading about sirens in the Odyssey, in Homer's Odyssey, which is the epic poem of Odysseus, um, of the hero Odysseus' journey from the Trojan War back to his homeland, um, Ithaca, I think. So back to his homeland. And he has to go through all of these trials along the way, and he has to meet up with all these monsters and goddesses and different kinds of antagonists, and one of those is the sirens. The sirens in the Odyssey have no form. Um, they have, you know, we don't know their form. All we know is that they have these voices. So they have these beautiful voices, this beautiful song. But the song isn't just about beauty or even about like sensuality and sexuality, which I think is how it's often represented. Um, but it's, it, the song holds wisdom. It holds incredible wisdom. Um, it holds, you know, power of knowledge that everyone isn't permitted to access. And so when men hear this song, they lose control and they drive their um, ships onto the rocks and they die at sea. So the way that Odysseus gets by the sirens is he commands his men to tie him up to the ship's mast and for them all to plug up their ears with wax so that they can't hear the siren song. Um, so later imagery of the siren would be very much a creature that I think we now probably will call a harpy was that they were bird women. So they were hybrids, but they were not mermaids. They were, they were um, women who had the body um, and the wings of a bird, but like women's faces. Um, but over the years, um, as these classics, so as the sort of ancient Greek and Roman myths became kind of reclaimed into European culture throughout the Renaissance and represented in art, the sirens somehow morphed into mermaids. Like they started, it's, I mean, it's probably some, has something to do with the, just the image of the ocean and the fact that Odysseus is crossing the ocean. And then we already have mermaid myths coming from, you know, other parts of mythology so that the sirens gradually become mermaids. And so within mermaid lore, I feel like we have two competing images. You have the image of the siren, which I think is the older, more powerful image of the dangerous, alluring, seductive, predatory, sometimes carnivorous <laughs> siren, right? So si sirens are sometimes depicted as um, basically sexually assaulting human men, <laughs> right? Um, dragging them under the water, um, eating them sometimes if they don't satisfy them sexually, right? So there are these carnivorous, dangerous, predatory creatures and the song is how they tempt their prey, right? Or how they bring down ships. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the image of the mermaid as this very kind of um, almost passive sort of innocent, 
um, lover or sea wife character. And she's often a tragic character, right? Who fails in her quest to achieve love with a human man. So you have these two competing images of the mermaid, but one of the things that often connects them is their beautiful singing voice and singing ability. Um, but the use to where this is put is very different. So one of the things I have found interesting as I'm researching mermaid lore and researching African diasporic mermaid lore is I have not, and people can correct me if I'm wrong, the, the, the lore around Mami Wata and these different water spirits, Yimaya or Yamoja, Oshun, Lacerin, like it's just, there's so much. There's so much, a lot of it is oral culture. Um, there are so many different like religions and you know versions of these African-based religions and practices and stories that it's, it's just very easy to get it wrong is something that I'm discovering. Um, you know, because people are coming from their different cultural conflict contexts with how they know and understand these stories. In all of the research I've done, I have not come across a beautiful singing voice being a major aspect of African diasporic mermaid lore. I have, that is not something that I've seen. I feel like I've maybe heard about Oshun singing at the bottom of the river, but it's just not something that I feel like I've seen emphasized. So there's a lot of overlap in these stories with European mermaids in terms of, and European sirens in terms of the mermaid's beauty, um, her potential, how potentially dangerous she can be, um, her power, right? I've seen a lot of overlap and a lot of cohe her vanity, the image of her with long flowing hair, holding a mirror and a comb. You know, I've seen like a lot of overlapping connection between African and European um, mermaid myths when it comes to those things. But this singing voice thing is something that I've, that's, that I have not seen as much in as African diasporic lore. So I do think that this is a very kind of Euro Western thing that comes directly out of the genealogy of the mermaid from the siren, from the Odyssey. Um, so in both the deep and in Wakanda Forever, this idea of the mermaids, of the siren song, the mermaid song is taken up. So within Wakanda Forever, when the people of Talakan attack, <laughs> right, the first thing you hear is this song. So it's this beautiful sonic song that it evokes human voices vaguely, but it also, I think, evokes kind of the sonic call of, of whales and you know, aquatic life and how they communicate. Um, and it hypnotizes people and people just start jumping off the ship, <laughs> right? Um, so there's this attack on a naval ship that is mining for vibranium on the ocean floor very early in the film. And you see all of the people just jumping off of the ship and they're like, oh, plug up your ears, plug up your ears. So that's a real callback in reference to um, oh, the, uh, the Odyssey, the Odyssey and the, in the, the sirens. And so this, mer this siren song also comes up in River Solomon's The Deep. And so um, it's a really complex book. And I'll probably talk about this book again because I'm only sort of talking about specific aspects of it right now. But there's this whole thing with memory and the Wajinru people um, they come out of these really traumatic experience of the Middle Passage, 
and the first generation decides it makes me think of um Toni Morrison's beloved there's this refrain in that novel that this is not a story to pass on this is not a story to pass on like this like that this this history is is too terrible <laughs> um to pass it on even though that's not what the novel's saying but there is this refrain um of of that line coming up so the first generation of the Wajinger people who are born from these mothers, when they see kind of more, um, you know, women coming down into the sea and they see these babies emerging, they decide that this, this trauma is too much for them to carry and they remove the memories so that they don't carry short-term memory. Um, they don't form like memory in, in the same way, right? It's, it's, I'm still actually making sense of it, even though I've been writing about this book for two years now. Um, so they don't form memory. And so they have a historian who is the person who carries all the memories um, of the Wajinra people. And because they do believe that history is important, the, the historian will sort of transfer the memories to everyone once a year so they can kind of know and know who they are, but then they give it back so they're not experiencing the trauma and the pain of it all the time. So, you know, there's a lot of sim symbology, symbolism, I think, going on around thinking about trauma um, in history and what it means to bear witness to this, like, terrible history of violence. Um, so, I know, I take so long to explain things. <laughs> So there is, so they don't actually know how they're created. So there is this scene where um, some of the Wajinru people, so there's Otiyaleyu when they first emerge, but they sort of become the Wajinru people. So the Wajinru people see a slave ship sinking and they realize that this is, you know, this is where they come from. Like these are their mothers. Um, and they start wailing in grief. Um, and so their wailing in grief disturbs the waters and it, it's the waters become turbulent and it causes a storm and the storm sinks the ship so actually the ship wasn't sinking they just saw the ship they saw the ship they saw the people chained above the ship they heard the crying out of pain of the people and in their grief about this they actually sink the ship so I just thought oh so I I felt like this was another way of reframing the siren song you know in Wakanda forever um, with the people of Talakan, the siren form is reframed as a warrior cry, right? Um, and it is an anti-colonial um, revolution, right? Like the siren song is the warning, right? Of the impending um, like anti-colonial uprising of indigenous peoples, right? Um, and in the deep, it is reframed as the cry of grief um, for the transatlantic slave trade, which also ends up in the sinking of the ship and attack on the forces of colonization and white supremacy. Um, and so I just love that because it takes the siren song out of being the kind of whimsical violence of a, a bored mermaid, <laughs> right? Who just doesn't care about human life. It takes it out of, which is basically a kind of, even though there are um, mermaid story writers and even like professional mermaids and people who've taken up the siren as a powerful figure, 
Um, one interesting thing I want to talk about one day is the way the siren has been taken up in horror film. Like there are so many horror films about mermaids, like killing men. Um, so, you know, it's there's ways in which that image has been subverted. But I think that with that image of the siren song and the carnivorous mermaid and a dangerous female, I think what it comes out of is a very misogynist idea about women's power right like this very misogynist idea of this predatory female especially since it's so often linked to sexuality and a like insatiable carnivore sexual appetite right so I think it's it what it comes out of even though people have sort of reclaimed and reframed and, and sort of revised that image it comes out of a very patriarchal fear of powerful women of women's desire um, and of the need to kind of contain that in this kind of figure. So I love the idea of taking that and reframing it as this anti-colonial violence, which I'm fine with. <laughs> I'm fine with anti-colonial violence, right? Um, you know, so in, in anti-colonial revolution and revolutionary action, you know, we're reframing the siren song in that way. So yeah, I think that that's all I'm going to say about that today. Once again, have no idea how long I've been talking. <laughs> and I am trying to go back to keeping these episodes short. So there's not so much pressure on me every time I want to produce one. I actually have a couple episodes in the can about something else. But since this Wakanda Forever is such a recent thing and there's a lot of conversation about it, I want to go ahead and do that today. Um, so, you know, please like, subscribe, um, share the Merwomanist podcast. You can follow me on Instagram at mommy, M-A-M-I underscore Melusine, M-E-L-U. S-I-N-E. My website is jalondradavis.com and I will see you next time. I do need to come up with a schedule for the podcast. I do need to put it out regularly. You know, I'm new at this. I just started a new job. You know, I'm still trying to figure it out, but you know, we're going to keep going. So thank you so much for listening.